Hello and welcome to Bottled Up on a mission to create conversations and make the mental health of men a top priority. You're joined by myself, Sunny, and Mayank, close friends from university who want to share the stories of everyday people on our platform. The reason? Because we are not alone. Before we kick this conversation off, thank you for tuning in and listening. If you haven't already, it would be awesome if you could rate, review, and follow our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your conversations. It makes a huge difference to our reach with these awesome guests and potentially life-saving conversations. And if you haven't just yet, it takes 20 to 30 seconds to leave us a review and would help us out massively. Thank you again and buckle up for another great conversation. Yeah, sweet. All right, Sandeep Verma, welcome to Bottled Up, mate. Uh, pleasure to have you on board. This has been a couple of months in the making. So welcome aboard to the Bottled Up experience. Thank you. So good to be here. Um, Look, you, you wear multiple hats, uh, a father, a writer, a partner to a lovely wife who we are yet to meet. So <laughs> there's a little hint to a barbecue that we might be having. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously your world you've traversed between, um, you know, being a lawyer, a speech writer, and now the founder of Sari Collective, which is both a community and a platform which amplifies the voices of South Asians in Australia and beyond. Um, mm-hmm. So... Usually we start a lot of these conversations with a bit of a tongue-in-cheek question. Uh, yeah. Normally when we do these episodes, it's it's on like a Saturday morning. We ask the question, you know, how have you slept? Uh, but yeah. I'm going to I'm gonna take away from my little exchange that it's at night. You don't sleep too much. Uh, you've got <laughs> young kids. And so the better question is... Um, you are you are into comics, um, yeah. As I've heard, and <laughs> uh, I think you and I are obviously hearing through the grapevine, which is AKA Harsh Deep. Mm. Um, you love your comics, so um, Manic and I would thought uh, thought first question to kick this off. Um, who was the? Oh, I guess the question is like, who is the superhero that you wanted to be growing up, um, and what did he or she or they uh, mean to you? Yeah, great question. Um, without a doubt, the answer is Superman. Um, oh wow nice and superman was always a big thing for me uh i um because i grew up in america right and so we had like unlike in australia where like there's kind of quality assurance check done on like the ducks of your school um (laughs) our process is like you know the school president and like student government is all elected so it's a popularity contest effectively yeah yeah. right so (laughs) i ran for school government like student government because i was interested in it and um And so my like high school thing, like I made little flyers and they had like a Superman S for Sandeep. And (laughs) and then I won on the back of that. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. Right. And it was because um, not just that look of, but it was actually like a thing I started reading. But the reason why I identified with Superman was because he was an immigrant. Mm. Like he came from the stars. He lived on like a little farm. Like he was, and he had these abilities that kind of were a, you know, allowed him to be Superman, but also had to, he had to hide some part of himself mm-hmm. um, to be Clark Kent. And he, all he wanted to do was be Clark Kent. And he wanted to be a writer, like, and he wanted to, you know, be part of humanity, but it was something that kept him apart from that. And that mm-hmm. was his kind of super ability. And so for me, as like a kid of immigrants, like that was such a, a strong metaphor. Um, and also that you could be like a body strength and be like kind of, you know, you'd make good choices mm-hmm. and you'd, look after and care people. And like, if you have a lot of 
um, gifts or privileges in your life that you know you want to use those well. Um, and Superman is a role model that I was like always there for you. And it's interesting now as like a, a dad, I think I was a teenager when I discovered that, like I think 12, 13. Mm. And so that felt like I was very much like, you know, teenage angst clashing with my dad kind of mm. age, you know, like and my dad, like my, my whole family's short and I'm tall. So like, I was just getting taller than my dad for the first time. And so that was like this physical, like embodiment of the power imbalance that was happening. And so Superman was like this figure for me that was like, ah, oh, okay. Like, this is what, like my dad would be like a buff American superhero who was like kind and helped people out, which was like very different than my dad, yeah. um, you know, who was a tip, not Indian. I was Indian and not buff whatsoever um <laughs> and uh and you know it was like of a different culture and stuff like that so it was a very much a time in my life where there was a lot of emotions coming on and superman was kind of that thing and i since then i've just loved superman in fact i was just uh reordering some, reorganizing my bookshelf so one of the nerdy habits of collectors generally is like reorganizing their collection right and especially yeah. comic book collectors like collecting like looking at their shelf um, I was reorganizing my shelf. There's a couple of really great Superman stories that came out over the last couple of years. Um, and there's a new Superman TV show. And so my, my wife and I sit and watch it. And like he's a <laughs> dad in, this, <laughs> in the new show. Superman yeah. is a dad and he has twin boys. And so it's like super relevant to me now because a couple of <laughs> years ago in the comics, Superman had a kid. And then, um, so this was a whole series of stories, like a series of like a whole run with Superman as a dad. And so I could tell like people that grew up in Superman comics, like I did all of a sudden, like are older now are our parents and they want to write about their experience and Superman going through what they are mm -hmm. going through. Um, and so they write about that. So he's, I guess, always been a character that's evolved um, and evolved with me and almost mm -hmm. been like unrealistically the big boy scout unattainable, but using mm -hmm. his powers for good and having this kind of immigrant insider outsider sort of perspective, like the hero of what every American kid wants to be, but also what, um, also outside of that, you know, because he wants to be something, he just wants to be normal, yeah. right? Yeah. Which is what we all wanted to be. Yeah. Can I just say as well that I love how you've manifested your inner Clark Kent with those bold sunglasses. You've got there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, no, not sunglasses, sorry, prescription glasses. Manifestation. It's, manifestation. manifestation. It's about the manifestation, <laughs> mate. Um, <laughs> no, I love that. Um, but, but I love how you went about describing that for, for me. I mean, for me, I was never really a, a DC fan. Just full disclosure, um, I was definitely more a, a Marvel person. That, that that was just that just seemed to be the, the 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 movies that I got into when I was younger. But I feel like it was kind of for a very similar reason to you. I, I was more of a, a more of an Iron Man fan. Um, similar to your reasons, I, I could really identify with him because he had a lot of problems, and I think what um, he wasn't the perfect human being. Um, and I think what Stan Lee does very well in his comics is how he humanizes a lot of the a lot of the superheroes they're not like these perfect people that it, it, he does show them to have sort of human regular human problems that everyone yeah, yeah. would kind of face that was the genius of stan lee in all the marvel yeah. comics that he created was he gave these characters like this sense of vulnerability and limitations and emotions and like sometimes mm -hmm. the powers were a curse like the whole all of x-men which i was super into as well like um and that humanized like the dc comic series are always kind of like these godlike figures that were kind of perfect and mm. you know chisels out of clay kind of things um, or batman like mm. never stuffed up you know um, but um the, the the marvel insight was like let's humanize them let's give them realistic flaws let's make them face struggles let's make them not perfect and stuff up a lot and have these like you know um issues with 
like mm. uh, problems <laughs> with themselves that they had to overcome. And that made it much more realistic because we're like, oh, great. Like this guy's, you know, got the same issue as some mm. similar issue I can mm. relate to. It's much more relatable. Yeah. Stanley, um, Stanley created such a wonderful character arc with a lot of those uh, superheroes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, Spider-Man especially. Um, Anyways, the I reckon uh, this might be a good segue. You've got a, a very bold American accent, Sandeep, and I think for a lot of the people listening in, you know, whether they've got Bose headphones, Apple AirPods, whatever it might be, um, the 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 depth of your voice is coming through. So you've obviously got a um, I don't know. I've, I've I've heard you speak about it, you know, quite a few times. But you know, one part of you, uh, I guess you've got like a different types of identities that have formed the Sandeep that you are today there's the american side of you mm. there's the south asian side of you and there's the australian side of you and there's so many more different layers in there as well yeah. um obviously um you know hearing you speak you know mank and i we're both uh, indian australians um and sometimes what we struggle with and mank and i have always talked about this is kind of fitting in one bucket or the other like there's always sort of you know your your yeah. your identity doesn't you know you know when you go to India you feel like an Australian when you're in Australia you have these parts of your Indian identity that are with you so um you know obviously people listening in people that might not know you um you um grew up in the states um what was it like growing up in the states um and how do you sort of describe your own identity growing up and who you are today as well yeah, I mean, it's been a journey in and out. And I think identity is a project um, that we all kind of work on in bits and pieces. And sometimes we come to different aspects mm. at different points in our journey um, and, you know, unpack things, adopt more and make kind of a patchwork of it really at the end. So, I mean, identify, and I think it's really interesting because there's a strong parallel between what is what went on in America and is still going there and what is happening in Australia now. Um, in that, and so identify as like, I guess, uh, Indian American, Australian. Um, and, and the sense of a generation that was coming up and being Indian American and kind of growing up there and owning that sense of being American in a way really has come to the fore in the last number of years, like the last couple of years, really like seeing people like Kamala Harris elected vice president of the country, who was someone like us. And like, I think she grew up near my cousins in San Francisco. Like it was, uh, was known, I guess, by people, um, you know, seeing like I had friends who were South Asian who grew up with me. Um, and they worked in like president right. Obama's white house, you know, um, with Cal Penn and other people there on uh, community relationships. And so what we saw, like my parents arrived in the sixties, right. Um, into the States, there was a brain drain from into the gave visas to professionals to come over. And then many of them went back and got married. Like my dad did and came back to the States. And so there was a different kind of group of people that were brought in. And then later there was another generation that came in of, um, other Indians and South Asians, right? So we actually had a pretty good community growing up. So I used to go to like Sunday school. Like we learned Hindi, tabla music. My sister did Kathak dancing. We did prayers and puja. Um, and that was our social community as well. Like on the weekends, we had parties with them, um, you know, weddings, shadis, dances, et cetera, <laughs> in hotel rooms or dodgy restaurants, you know? Um, I remember having like a sweet 16 party at a at a yeah. uh, some buffet place, you know, like with a dance floor and um 
and invited some non-Indian friends. And they're like, oh, this is great. Like, what's that called? It's <laughs> a glob jump. And I was like, oh, they're like, oh, well, it's great. Um, so it was very much like the culture didn't know what we were. Um, so we were on the outside. We were in our own communities, kind of separated from that. Um, and, you know, we're trying to see that recognition. There was also there the concept and discussion around race. So when I was growing up in the 90s, like African-American culture was on its way up. But we saw African-Americans were like, oh, they're cool. And we're not. We're like the nerdy brown minority comparison, you know, unathletic, kind of more studious, you know. And so there was this like, I think, this differentiation between how we were relative mm. to the African-American experience, which is very different. Um, and this model minority myth that we faced a lot of like, you know, mm. studious and working hard. Um, and then coming to Australia, like I see that happening now later because the white Australia policy, right? Migration of Indians and South Asians has come later, like, you know, at the earliest, mm. like seventies, late seventies and into the eighties. So that's a full, you know, 20 years almost on from that in most cases. Um, so you're seeing that same, I see the same pattern happening, playing out in a different context. And it's really different because in Australia, there's a vocabulary about some aspects mm -hmm. of the Indian experience, whether it's like food or cricket or whatever. Um, at least there's some way in, in America, there was like no frame of reference whatsoever. I remember being a Thanksgiving production, being cast as a Indian, like a native American. And I was like, I'm the, it's the wrong one. I'm dot, not feather. Mm. And we had to explain it to people that way. Um, so they could understand. So, um, I think coming to Australia when I did, like, um, I came for my master's or I came on exchanges as an undergrad, um, when I was 20 and then mm -hmm. back, came back for my master's and st have stayed here for about 20 years. And so coming back and like, and then seeing that change, like when I first came back, I did a master's thesis on South Asian identity in the media, comparing Australia and the U S and the UK. And there was like such difference mm -hmm. because of when people arrived there, the UK has even progressed. Mm -hmm. now. it's like third or fourth generation Indians and South Asians there. So it's just the context creates a big difference in your, when migration happens for you. And so when you can see yourself, but I have an uncle who's like finally moving to a civilized country that plays <laughs> cricket and we can talk about cricket and like, you know, it's, you're more Indian there. Um, and equally like, I mean, physically closer, I guess, to India, but also equally I felt like my American yeah. side to engage with that. I wanted to do that. Mm -hmm. I had to be conscious to do that. So um, I was involved in like um, organizations here that helped register Americans to vote. Like I remember for mm -hmm. President Obama, we were campaigning and I was like, yeah. I was on sunrise. Ah, uh, uh, really? Um, in Australia, like on the morning of President Obama's inauguration, because I was the spokesperson for the Democratic Party in Australia, or one of them. And so like uh, the US Democratic Party. And so I was like, they called me and they're like, hey, can you come? this weird phone interview kind of thing and they're like oh you sound good like come to um you know we'll fly you sydney and you, and then like you're on at like three in the morning or whatever the time difference was and so like i remember i went there i was on tv doing a live stream of that the whole time um and i guess they just didn't realize that maybe they didn't realize the way i looked but they, they wanted some like mm. kind of gung-ho american they're like oh your accent is good but you know they said like that midwest or something okay, um, but yeah. anyway i was yeah, yeah. no they didn't say it. somebody said to me <laughs> like, okay um but uh i remember you know mm. it, was, it was in a pretty amazing moment see president obama inaugurated walking down uh, pennsylvania avenue and going to the white house and and then coming back to melbourne and like celebrating with a group of americans here mm. um 
and then like I have various things I'm into. Like I think uh, cooking is the best example for me of like how do I blend my cultures. So um, like I learned a lot of cooking from my mom, who's an amazing cook. Um, I love cooking Indian food and like the spice mixes, but I also love um, like certain American foods, like um, like chili con carne. Mm. Like I love that, and because it's like spicy and, and hot and textured, and so. Like I used my the way my mom makes curry, which is like, um, like the spice mix. The yeah. third guy, she like makes the spices and cooks it down with tomatoes yeah. and onions and garlic, right? And then you add things to it. Um, I use that to make uh, my version of chili con carne with Mexican spices um, and lots of different chilies. And so, and then I started doing these chili cooking competitions and ended up winning them in Australia. So I became like the Indian American guy who was like a chili cooking champion. And so it was a very funny thing. I like, I draw on, and now I you know, run a South Asian media startup telling stories about South Asians, seeing ourselves and they're talking about diversity and inclusion and mm. in our lived experience. And so, but I don't see the two as mutually exclusive. I think that you can be both and draw on the best bits of both, but I think that that's a journey too. And I'm not like, there's probably a lot of people listening out there who are like, oh, I just feel like, I don't know why, where I fit or what I am, or maybe um, I'm working that out or haven't found that kind mm. of narrative that makes things reconcile mm. um, and, and how that all works together. And I think I had two thoughts about that. The first one is that there's this idea that at some point you'll be South Asian enough to be South Asian, right? Like, oh, I'll be Indian enough or this person is Indian enough and I'm not. And like, I've literally spoken to mm. thousands of South Asians in Australia over the last two years running Sardi. And pretty much all of them have said, uh, I don't feel quite Indian enough or South Asian enough to write about the South Asian experience. And I was like, yet you are South Asian, <laughs> you know, and you'll talk to them about, they'll be the most South Asian person you've ever met, every single one of them, you know, and then they'll, yep, there'll be a hesitancy about owning that identity and experience. Um, so that's one concept. Like there is no such mm. thing as South Asian enough, you know? And the second idea is like called narrative identity. I don't know if you've heard about it. So it's this concept that like um, the way you tell your story about yourself um, makes a big difference to yeah. Yeah. your life, right? So there's a like there's a positive like redemptive storytelling, and there's like contaminative storytelling. So what I mean by that is like redemptive is like. I failed, I learned, I grew, I came out of it. And this is the story of my life or I, I brought these pieces of my identity. I reconciled with it. I worked it through and now I've kind of got something that is a happy medium or um, where I feel comfortable drawing on the different aspects of myself or I've, I've engaged with that or I, I live it in these particular ways. Uh, and there's the other side, which is like, I'm broken, I'm caught in between, I'm not sure where I sit, um, which is that kind of, you know, contaminated idea, or I'm a, I'm, my identity is formed on the trauma or the difficulties of my experience only. And not just dismiss that because that does form part of who you are, but to make that a bigger part of who you are means that like the, the identity you experience has yep. caused so many problems for you that, that mm. you don't own it and that you don't create a narrative around it. Um, and there's an acronym for this in the South Asian context, mm. right? A, B, C, D. Do you know this one? Uh. Australian born confused oh, this they see being someone from India, right? Right? Like so we had an American we have American yeah. born confused this same acronym, unfortunately. <laughs> um and so like that idea is that, like I'm confused, I'm caught yeah. in between cultures, I don't know who I am, right? 
And so it was literally the title of my master's thesis in 2006 <laughs> or five, 2005, um, was Australian born. And, and I changed it because I interviewed young people um, and I talked about their identity. And I found that there was a generation on the way up, even back then, that was like trying to navigate this thing, right? Some of them felt really Australian. Some of them felt really Indian. In fact, there was a bunch of them in like you know, language and dance schools. They're like, no, I'm Indian first. I remember like a 14 year old kid was like, I'm Indian first <laughs> yeah. and then I'm Australian. And the other one was like, no, I'm Australian mm. first and then I'm Indian. And like, and then someone was like, no, I'm Australian Indian. Mm. Another one's like, I'm Indian Australian, you know? Like, and there was all these people yeah. and they were trying to navigate this hyphen and working out who they were. And there was a few of them that were like, no, I'm just trying to be as Indian and as Australian as I can be. And I was like, I like that. And they're like, it's, and one of them said something great that stuck with me. And is actually the core, one of the core reasons I started my startup, because I heard the same story again, 15 years later, was <laughs> I'm trying to create yeah. what that is. Right. And I was like, wow, that's like, she's like, I have to be creative about it every day. I have to navigate code switch. I have to like <laughs> bring in Indianness into my Australianness, bring in Australianness into my Indianness in, you know, whatever. And so she's like, I have to be creative. And so I retitled my thesis um, as Australian born creative thesis. And I was like, these are the people, <laughs> this is the generation that is coming and that is, you know, growing. And this is the, the challenges they face. They need to be seen their narratives and stories need to be seen in like media and stories and television, film and all those other outlets. And, and the funny thing was like 15 years later, I was doing some community engagement work um, in human rights with a whole bunch of communities, young people doing leadership training. And I talked to a lot of people and met a lot of mm. newly arrived kind of Indians and South Asians and, and young people in that community, as well as parents. I had just become a parent. So I was meeting a lot of parents and uh, they all said the same thing. We don't mm. see ourselves. There's no like, we're trying to navigate ourselves and identity. We don't see it recognized in Australia. We don't see it. And I was like, mm -hmm. this is the same problem. This is the same problem. Like that they want to be, there wants to be a space for like the creative yeah. articulation of identity. And that, that doesn't have to be set. And there's no such thing as South Asian enough. And so that's kind of why mm -hmm. my startup <laughs> yeah. exists. Um, because mm -hmm. like no one had done anything about this problem and it had been sitting there for so long and we re revisited the research and it was just as crazy. And there's even more, now there's a million, mm -hmm. more than a million South Asians in Australia. And we don't still have yeah. uh, hardly any media presence and we don't have places that support each other to articulate mm -hmm. a totally different version of identity. Um, you know, and that doesn't even count, like count people like my kids who are, you know, uh, mm -hmm. arguably half Aussie you know, because my shout partner is Australian, um, Anglo-Australian. <laughs> and yeah, shout out to the kids. But they also like, mm. so their citizenship, right? They are, uh, they have American mm. citizenship. They have Australian citizenship. And my wife also has a Dutch side. So they are Dutch citizens as well. So they're, like, <laughs> yeah. they're the world, yeah. right? In one. But they also like, you know, their names are mm. Arjun and Jaitin, like very South Asian names. The last name is Varma. Is that know, a like, um, and so they have this like, mm identity they're going to be navigating mm. i was like where's the space for them and where's the space for us as mm. like or people like myself as fathers who are trying to create a new mm. version of what that looks like there's no space mm. to talk about that from my identity <laughs> perspective so sorry it's a long answer to your question but yeah, i think there was oh, a lot to say there you you touched on like an awesome article um talking about fatherhood i feel like there's a there's a lot to unpack in that but one thing that does stick out is um yeah obviously the narrative changes with the the number of generations that exist uh, obviously in america if you know they're three or four generations mm. in compared to australia where you're getting a lot of first second 
Um, don't even know if there's third, probably not even third. It's like usually first, second or so, like that's the majority of them. Um, and that yeah, changes the dialogue yeah. that happens, um, especially with the kids that grow up, um, even the young adults that, that become. And so mm. for you, um, for you, obviously growing up in, you know, San Fran or Los Angeles, um, yeah, what was it? What was so, it like? So. Firstly, first part was, what was it like being around that community of, of South Asians? But then also, secondly, your relationship with your parents, because mm. you touched on an awesome piece um, that you wrote, which was um, a reflection on, on Father's Day, which I hugely recommend anyone listening. Um, yeah. Firstly, get through this episode and then open up Google and then give it a read. <laughs> um, but we'll put it in the show notes. But um, it was a reflection on your fatherhood, um, not only a reflection on your own fatherhood, but also the people that were before you. Um, you know your fathers and the generations that kind of mm. uh, came through before uh, yours and for me as like a, a reader of that um, and I don't know if this was the angle that you were you were hoping for either but it made me reflect like I'm not even a father but it gave me like a, a angle to reflect as you know a one day I hope to be a father um, the type of role model that I want to be um, and how I can process the intelligence yeah. or the emotional understanding that I've been able to get, obviously, Mank and I being on this podcast, um, being around the dialogue that we are, how I can translate to be, how I can translate that to be the best role model I can be for, you know, whoever my kids are. And I think there's a sense of humility also learning from the kids um, as they grow up and, and what they can teach us. Mm. So it's a loaded question. I've gone in, you know, five divergent ways, but maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe it might be a good starting point to talk about, you know, what instigated you to write that piece in the first place. Um, and then we can touch on sort of the community that you grew up with, uh, in, in San Fran. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, sorry, I, I, I put five questions I think on you. It's really, no, no, I, there's yeah. a lot to do there. I have a lot to say, I think about the, that topic, having written about it as well, but, I think for the people that are listening, right? Like we're talking about mm. men's mental health here. And I think men are so often defined by mm. their relationship with their father, whether they are like, <laughs> you know, see the parts of their father they want to be, or see the opposite of who they want to be, or see aspects that mm. they like and aspects that they don't like. And that there is this evolution of fatherhood. Like we have so much more knowledge now about all the different aspects of having conversations mm. about like say mental health and um, about the impact on fathers. So I was just reading some research that said that, you know, up to 27% of men experience depression after birth. It's higher than postpartum depression for women, which is about 15% according to the research. Um, and that is not a thing that is talked about. Um, and, you know, very few of those like, uh, I think the research was saying something like 75% of those men in this study, which I think interviewed five or 600 fathers, 75% um, of those mm -hmm. kept their feelings inside, didn't talk about it. Um, and if you think about where they learned to do that, they learned it by watching their dads. They learned it when they were kids before they even knew about a conscious choice, they were around their families and their families set role models for how things were, right? And they unconsciously pick up and follow the behaviors of their fathers, right? And if their model of their dad is like stoic, not talking about their emotions, you know, some sort of like accepting status quo, women do more work at home and everything else. And the dad's kind of just 
you know, come in after work and are celebrated heroes for not doing that much and then kind of, or not present because they're working all the time. I mean, these are all the questions that you, like when I became a dad, I was like, what kind of dad do I want to, you know, like I think, so I had a, um, I've spoken about this before, I guess, but I had a very difficult start um, to becoming a dad because my son had heart surgery when he was young. I like, and he was a couple of days, like 12 days old. Um, and so it was a real, like I was unplugged from the world in that, in the children's hospital at that time. And, um, but I think it made me think about like, you know, fatherhood changes every dad for the most part. Um, it doesn't change everything about you, but you have this, like, if you have a connection with your child, like it's this profound thing. Um, it's profound in many ways in that you want to be there, but you also want to be like the best version of yourself or the best dad that you can be um, ideally. And there's so many dads I know that are in the struggle with that and they have their own triggers that are caused by fatherhood, lack of sleep, and sometimes they're not the best self. Um, and so I think what I wrote was in the prelude to Father's Day. And for the dads that I was hearing about, this was sort of post like the latter stages of our lockdown here in Melbourne in the pandemic. And it was like, dads were doing it tough just as moms were and a lot of people were doing it tough. But um, one thing about that, that speaks to that kind of idea that men experience these feelings, but don't articulate them is that we have less emotional vocabulary, like and depression affects men and women differently. So the way that it affects uh, women, there's a, there's a questionnaire on postpartum depression. That's like, have you been crying a lot lately is one of the mm -hmm. indicators. Right. But that doesn't work for men because men don't cry when they're depressed. All the research shows that what men do when they're depressed is they numb their feelings. Like they actually try not feel anything. And so men engage in more risk taking behavior because they're trying to feel something because when they're depressed, they, their feelings are numb. Like they don't have any, they feel like they don't have any significant feelings whatsoever. And one of the dads in the, in the research described is like, I want to go, I don't want to go into my bed. I want to go under my bed and like hide away from the world. And I want to just zone everything out. So the long answer to this question is around, like I wanted to write about fatherhood and I wanted to normalize the experiences of difficulty that fathers might be having some days, but also celebrate the fact that like, if you're showing up and you're trying to be even a 2% better dad um, than you were the day before or the month before, or then you know improve upon like what your parents are doing, that is actually what a parent wants is for their child to exceed them in a particular way. And I don't think my dad's ever said, I mean, other than like in financial terms, I don't think my dad's ever said like, hey, I want you to be better at this than me, you know, at being a dad. Um, but I feel like that's the intention, right? And I feel like that's the intention for me. Like I would love my kids to evolve from me to be better um, at certain things. And now there's more tools, right? There's conversation and dialogue, there's language around things like, you know, research on postpartum depression and things about men's mental health conversation about it, it's normalizing but there's still a lot of dads especially in the south asian community who it's not talked about it's there's a stigma attached to it they don't have the vocabulary um they you know there's a shame that comes with talking about say mental health and things like that and so the article that i wrote was a call to dads to say don't do you don't have to jump to like you know all this but what you should do is just check in with yourself reflect use Father's Day as an opportunity for you to reflect. And I propose some questions that fathers can use to reflect on their, their, how they are as a dad. Do they feel like they're doing like the things that are right and celebrate the things that they're doing well. And then also look at the things that maybe they could do more or rather they feel like they're present enough for their kids. And many dads say no. 
Many dads get caught up in like their identity be tied to who they are and where they work, right? Like so many men and so many dads are like, I am my job. And if I didn't have my job, what would I be? Um, and my experience of fatherhood was like, I was a dad first and then I was my job and then I was everything else, right? So it became this primary identity that was never go away. Um, and so that was really profound shift in who I was. And, and then that was a profound shift in how I wanted to be that person and a call to being better. Not that I get it right all the time. Like there's a lot of things that fatherhood like brings up for you as well to, to try and work through. My relationship with my dad growing up um, and still is pretty good. Um, but there were many times, like, especially when I was a teenager that I was like, you know, angsty and clashing with my dad and, and, and Steve Bidoff who's a, like a researcher in, in childhood and, and raising boys and raising girls is an Australian author. He talks about this in a couple of his books, um, especially one called raising boys, which is a great book. If anyone's looking for um, a book on this topic. Um, and he says, look, there's certain phases, you know, like zero to five is like more uh, child, especially boys more attached to their mom, like, you know, say six to 12, they're more attached to their dad. And then after that, they're more attached to a family friend or someone outside because they don't, they feel like everything their parents saying is like old school and whack. You know, you remember that phase, right? Like, my parents, <laughs> God, they suck, you know, like can't hang with them. Um, and then you kind of, you know, grow up, you come to your terms, you get into your twenties, and then you kind of solidify your identity over that period of time. And then sometimes there's a chance to reconnect or some people maintain their relationships with their fathers, but there's a lot of rituals that can be done at that time. Um, so there's different phases of that relationship. So um, having become a dad, I appreciate my dad a bit more and the journey he went through and the sacrifices he made, um, but also model my own parenting and my own life very differently. Cause I think we have slightly different value sets. Um, and that's both the circumstance of, you know, where we are in the history of the world, but also what we've experienced, um, but also the, the privileges and the benefits I get from him being first-generation immigrant and me being a second-generation, um, you know, migrant, son of migrants who gets to experience that kind of life in a, a completely different way and the culture is in a different way um, and gets to make different choices, I guess, or feels like they have more capacity to make different choices. Mm. It's interesting there when you when you were speaking, and um, one of the things that I did note was around how um, our language can control the way we think. I think um, it's the, the, this this whole idea of you know expressing emotion and um, expressing uh, different ways of, of of feeling. I guess it, if we're not sort of given that language to describe those emotions, it's very hard from then then to sort of articulate the way you're feeling. And George Orwell definitely describes it very well in his book, um, 1984. Um, and I think I've, I've used this this example very um, a number of times. Um, essentially, the whole premise of the book is if, is if, you, can, if you can control the language that a, per, uh, that a particular society can use, it can control the way that people think. Um, and I think it's a, it is somewhat of a, a similar comparison to the situation that we have right now. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think there's a bit of, um, so like you said, control of language is a thing, like how society can take a language and limit it, right? But what we are socialized into as men is a society where our emotional vocabulary is stunted. It's very limited, right? So Brene Brown, you know, Brene Brown, super famous, right? Like her new book is called Atlas of the yeah. Heart. Have you heard of this book? Right? So she's premised in it that there's uh, at least 87 different emotions. Oh, wow. 
right? And in one talk I heard her say there's at least a hundred. Um, and, you know, if we think about how we describe kind of feeling depressed or sad, right? Like I've, I've had that experience myself. Um, I talked about it in terms of feeling like really low or feeling really sad, right? And, but sadness is not despair and despair is depression. Despair is not having hope, right? And that's kind of the marker for us. So we don't even have the vocabulary nuanced enough to understand the difference sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of how we just have kind of blunt vocabulary and guys are much more limited in their emotional vocabulary. And, and the other thing that jumps off of that for me um, is that I came across this great book recently um, called The Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. This book is phenomenally good. So I came across it via a poem that had a word and I looked at the word and it was in this website, Dictionary of yeah, Sonder. Um, so the Sonder is on the back of this book. And Sonder is a word that means like the realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own. Mm, okay. But mm. it's not a real word. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a made up word, right? And so this book is a collection of over like 10 years of words that this, this writer has come up with that like emotions that this writer has come up with for which there are no real words. And so he's made up a dictionary of words <laughs> that have emotions that we feel that are not actually mm. real words yet or yet maybe yeah right and he says language is a thing that is always changing language are things that are always evolving and why not you know all words yeah. are effectively made up you know words draw on different roots and all kinds of stuff so um you know i recently got this book and i've been reading it every day a little bit a couple of words here and there just to explore the concepts as a writer and like it's beautiful and poetic so there was one that came to mind i, I saw the other day that i was like oh i wanted to bring up with you guys and to your listeners right so the word is and we'll play okay. game so you guess what it means <laughs> oh here we go bags not first okay, yeah. oh damn it um <laughs> so i'll give you let's do two all right let's do two right it's it's kind of fun so the first one is called by over so b y e dash over okay so what does by over mean um, i'll take the second one damn you sonny um <laughs> uh i reckon by over what does by over mean it's like is it like you say by and you like you say bye and then jump over a fence i don't know <laughs> <laughs> I can give it to you if you're struggling. Oh, please, Sunday. I'm struggling. Uh, I need a life jacket. <laughs> so the, the definition is the sheepish casual vibe between two people who shared an emotional farewell, but then unexpectedly have a little extra time uh, together, uh, wordlessly, and agreeing to pretend they've kind of moved uh, on. Yeah. So yeah. it comes from like goodbye plus yeah. duo. Gotcha, it's, gotcha. It's it's funny how those interactions, sorry, Sandeep, it's funny how those interactions happen, but like neither party kind of acknowledges it. You just kind of talk for like another 10 minutes. <laughs> no, it's like, yeah, I, yeah. I know exactly that like, moment. It's like, uh, we're going to just stand here silently, even though we are people and we just yeah. kind of had this real deep <laughs> emotional moment, you know? Um, and so I thought it's great. It's like, it's exactly describing yeah. a situation that exists yeah. in your life, but there's no word for it. It's just like, everyone just yeah. calls that awkward. <laughs> You know, but awkward is like it's much more subtle than awkward, right? Um, yeah. So the next, okay, the next one is called uh, Furacy, which is spelled F E R E S Y. I don't think the spelling's going to help you, mate. E S Y. 
the feeling of when you jump from a plane doing a skydive <laughs> and you never wanted to do it in the first place. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's oddly specific, mate. <laughs> okay, so I'll give you this one too. Um, so Pharisee is the fear that your partner is changing in ways you don't understand, even though there might be changes for the better. Because it forces you to wonder whether your relationship needs a few careful nudges to fall back into balance and is still as stable as ever. Um, or involves a person who's, who no longer actually exists I, as they were. So it comes from fere, which is Middle English for partner, and yeah. heresy. I have a question. You know, you know how we were um, talking earlier how people yeah. identify themselves as Australian first and then Indian second? Do you think this author comes up with the word first mm. and then the definition, the definition, the definition then the word? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I reckon it probably comes up with a scenario and then looks up like, <laughs> Kind of old English words that are sort of related and smash them together. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh. um, there's a book, Steal Like an Artist, that just talks about like how artists should steal things and just remix them and combine them together. And that's like basically the creative process yeah. called Creative Collisions, where you just, you know, remix or collapse two things together into one. And that's basically like most creativity nowadays. And no <laughs> idea is actually all that new. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's what this person has done for years is like right. smash things together. But the choices they've made has been really good. Like Ferris is an interesting idea, right? That like yeah. identity and our partnerships and our relationships continue to evolve. Um, and maybe we need to recognize that moment. Yeah. Um, but like that kind of like giving people that breadth of vocabulary, right? Mm -hmm. Even just about our feelings and our, our other words that describe certain situations. Like we find, like I find uh, we're so constrained as men to, as to how we talk about that, like mm -hmm. even just feelings more generally. Um, but even then like more expansive kind of scenarios like mm -hmm. that, that have, have emotional resonance for us. Like that might be a deep moment for somebody, mm -hmm. right? But they just can't describe it well. When you, when you digest a book like that, you kind of have to take it in small spurts, right? Oh, like yeah. You, 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 you want to read a word like that, think about it, apply it to your own life, how you yeah. relate it's to it. It's the equivalent of like either reading like a ton of poetry and just being brain overloaded <laughs> yeah. or what I've like the equivalent of that for me is always going to like art museums where you're like gung-ho about the first like 10 paintings yeah, yeah, and yeah. then you go to more and then like it dwindles and then by yeah. the end you're just like on art overload yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. and you can't like you know go too much further and you have no, to break literally when we used to go to a couple of art yeah. museums um when we were younger uh, we don't ever go when we we only go to art, an art museum if we were overseas um <laughs> and like the i pretty much act like an art connoisseur for like the first couple of paintings like oh you know the the, the foreground the background like you know all this stuff um but then um after that like yeah, yeah. You, you kind of you kind of move move on i think a little bit um and try and just pace your way through the through the museum <laughs> minutes as quickly per as painting possible. yeah, yeah the minutes yeah. per painting will just go down yeah totally. um but yeah i, I look I, I wanted to um potentially take this opportunity to uh, switch gears just a little bit. Um, I mean, you mentioned early on in the conversation around the birth of your son, um, which of course for many fathers is a beautiful moment. And hopefully there's actually a definition or a word in that book that you mentioned around around a word that encapsulates the emotions that, that one would experience <laughs> yeah. at that time. But yeah, yeah. Um, I think, and, and look, having been having been in this podcasting chair, and the privilege yeah. of being in this podcasting chair is we can listen to the to the um, to the incredible stories um, of, of 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 the guest and hear about their life experiences, and the birth of your son. Obviously, it, it not obviously, but it did come with its share of complications. Um, and I would love to know, and I'm completely in your boat here, um, Sandeep, if you were able to share with us and and, and our listeners what that 
what those moments leading up to the birth of your son during the birth of your son and also after that like what did that sort of part of your life look like and you know how did it change and, and how did that change your perspective on everything yeah i mean it was really joyous until like as he was born right um you know, I was becoming a dad, like in yeah. that moment, I remember holding him and like looking to his eyes and just feeling this amazing kind of um, depth of connection and like kind of seeing myself reflected back, but also seeing this like beautiful, uh, like transcendent, you know, thing that was just born, came into the world and like how beautiful he was. And, um, you know, uh, so I held my son um, and then, it gave him to my wife. Um, and so like he was, his eyes opened when I was holding him. And so I was literally the first thing that he saw in his life. Um, and that's amazing, right? Like, um, there's just something about that that changes you. Um, and the, and the love you feel in that time and it grows like in some people, they don't feel anything right away. And it comes later for me. It felt very powerful in that moment. Um, there's a, a strong connection. Um, and so I was a practicing lawyer. I, you know, had been a speechwriter for a number of years, worked in government, and I worked in crisis response a lot. So I was kind of calm under pressure. Um, and, you know, my son was born, he was a little underweight, um, and he was okay, and they warmed him up um, an incubator, and then, you know, we were there. And, um, and then a doctor came by and was like, um, feeling like did a check of his pulse on his legs and was like, uh, they're a little weak. Uh, I'll come back. Um, and we're like, oh, okay, is that a thing? And then came back and then came back a third time. It's like, ah, I'm just going to get my friend, the other doctor to come in and do a further check. He's a cardiologist. He'll just check. They're still a bit weak. So we were getting nervous um, at the same time celebrating, like not thinking it's a big deal, kind of, you know, uh, just processing being parents and having a child there. Um, uh, and long story short, it turned out that he had um, like a narrowing of his arch of his aorta. So like the where the blood came out and it was reducing his pulses. Plus, um, and this ties into fatherhood, right? Like he was born with holes in his heart and I was born with holes in my heart. So I knew that what happened to him came from me. Um, and, you know, heart disease is a real issue in our South Asian community. Um, it's been present in my family. So I was like, God, this is happening. I mean, later I thought more so that this was happening because of me. At the moment, it was just like overwhelmed. Um, and so it was like dealing with just becoming a parent and then dealing with the diagnosis. So five days in the hospital, um, you know, improved a lot, was kind of kept overnight, sometimes on obs observation, and then came back to us. And then, so we were becoming parents. And then I was sort of overwhelmed by all the medical talk that was coming at me, right? And my mom is a doctor. So... I uh, had been, you know, calling my parents with an excitement, you know, that, hey, you have a grandson. And, um, and then mom, like the doctor's things, like, oh, can you tell some of this to my mom? And so he's telling my mom, so just so like she gets what it is and can like translate it back to me if I need it. Um, and then he's like, oh, just hold on. I'm just going to um, uh, like hand the phone back to the parents and tell the parents what's going on. And then they'll tell you a bit later. And I was like, who's he talking about? And I was like, oh, he's talking about me. Like, I'm the parent here, you know? Um, and I realized that, like, I was responsible. And, like, me and my wife, Laura, and I were, like, we were the parents in the situation. We had to make decisions. And we had to, like, 
you know, go, like be there. Um, and so that was the kind of the first time someone had called me the parent um, was like in response to talking to a cardiologist. So we came home and then we had a follow-up checkup like a couple of days later, like about a week later. And then we went back in for the checkup and he's like, it's got first, the arch is narrowed. He's going to have to have heart surgery straight away, like go straight to the children's hospital. So we did. And then we were there for about a day and he had open heart surgery. Um, and they, they luckily like he'd been breastfeeding and he'd been growing. And so he was a little bit older than, um, having to have it like the day he was born, which would have been an even more high risk scenario. But like the Australian children's hospital, the Melbourne children's hospital is just like both a sad and amazing place. Like the people who are there are so highly skilled and it's designed for kids as like giant fish tanks. Um, while we were in the waiting room, like he was wheeled away to have this operation. And then luckily they didn't have to go and break his ribs. So they went through the back. Um, while we're there, there's another kid there. And he's like, do you want to see my zipper? I was like, it's inappropriate, you know? <laughs> and he's like, no, no, my zipper. And he like opens up his shirt <laughs> and he has like a scar, like he'd been operated on. He was a heart kid. And so we found out there's all these kids that, mm. you know, have heart issues. Some make it, some don't. Some have spent a very, very long time in the, in the children's hospital. And like I said before, like I was, I guess, trained or had an experience in bushfires, like Black Saturday bushfires, like crisis response tsunamis, things like that. So like, I guess my temperament is to be calm under pressure, um, which is why I was okay at that job. But, um, and so while all this was happening, I was like, no bad news is, is, is good news or no bad news is not making it worse. And I was like, I'm okay until something goes wrong. And so I was still, I guess you could call it optimistic, but didn't feel optimism. It just felt like I'm holding this space and I'm not going to feel it, that it's worse until it's worse. And like, you know, once he was wheeled away, it was like pretty heavy for us. And we just kind of, you know, were silent and, and there. And my wife's temperament was different. So she was like very emotional and very kind of feeling the weight of this and like, you know, not knowing what to do. Um, and then, and then when he came back out of the operation, it was successful and he was in like the ICU recovery ward and he was covered in like wires and IV and everything else. And he was through it. So I kind of held on until then. And then I saw him like that and I was a mess. Like everything I was holding in, like just came out. Right. And my wife was okay because she was like, oh, he's through. I'm okay now. I, I wasn't sure he was going to make it. He's made it. Now I'm okay. And I'm like, oh my God, I go is he going to wake up? Is he going to be okay? What's the recovery going to be like? And the whole thing. So it was very difficult, but at different times, so we kind of support each other and we're there for each other. But the, um, and then we went back home after a couple of weeks in the kids uh, children's hospital and then came back home and basically had to start over again, being parents. Um, and then he was recovering, you know, from his surgery. And, um, and then there's been a little bit of relapse here and there, but now he's, it's totally healed. His holes have healed. Everything has been great. And um, he's totally healthy and you wouldn't know, you know, he's never missed anything as a result. Um, and, and so for me, like I had just, when my wife was like going to labor, we'd gone to an appointment, I'd gone with her. I was having, like, I was a young lawyer at the time in a firm and I had my first trial that I was running and I just handed over the trial. Um, and then I was away for a while and I came back and I just, um, like, so I came back and I, I was doing the work, but it was difficult 
put my heart back into it. Um, and I don't know if there was at that point kind of feelings of, as I was mentioning, kind of like depression or not, but it happened later for me. Um, so I think my like emotional palette, I guess, and maybe this is, I mean, I've learned that this is a masculine thing, right? Like to, to not feel for a period of time and then have the feelings hit you. And that's generically like for me, my experience, I differ in like a heated moment, uh, generally, um, uh, at least in a work context, especially, and then I'll, and then I'll get, it'll come to me. So I think it came to me later and that forced me to think about what I want to do. And all I want to do is be at home a lot. Um, even though I liked the work that I was doing and, um, you know, being a practicing lawyer and had studied for it and worked at the same time and was like intellectually was really stimulating. Um, but I think it, it forced me to question like what I wanted to do and what the impact I wanted to make in the world and how I wanted to be there both for my family, but also be the person that I wanted to be proud of. And so that my son could be proud of and like I was proud to be. And I think it, it led me to um, change what I was doing from being a commercial lawyer to being a children's lawyer and then from being a children's lawyer um, to working in more like, um, you know, uh, social justice work and impact based work, um, which led to me, um, like I mentioned at the start, kind of working with diverse young people in diverse populations and doing training and then realizing that the same problem exists for South Asians and then finding an opportunity to get supported to start a startup. Um, that's kind of my journey along the way to be more me, I guess, or to be more recognizing of the, the, the things that were true about me, which is like, um, and I, I ascribe it to a change in not changing who I was fully, but like more clear in my articulation of who I was from a values perspective, right? So the reason I was a lawyer is because I believed in the, like the value of justice um, and that was really important to me. Um, and, uh, you know, equally like with the value of like family, you know, being strong and, and fatherhood being strong because I wanted to be the type of father that I like was different from my own father, but also like drew on the good parts of that too. Um, and to be there and to kind of be more emotionally like present as I was more in tune with that. But the other aspect of my own values that was really important to me was community and creativity. And I wasn't getting a chance to express those as a commercial lawyer in the way that I wanted, even though I was doing other things to support that, volunteering children's literacy organizations and, um, and on a couple of boards and things like that. And so, but it forced me to say like, what is it I, what is the thing that is essential to me? What mark do I want to make? What impact do I want to have in the world? Um, and, and that if I'm happy in doing that, if I'm doing the thing that I really want to do, if I'm feeling alive and supported and the energy I get from that, I can put into my family. Um, and that, 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 you know, it just showed me the fragility of life, I think in those moments, right. Not just becoming a father and seeing a baby in the process of like the birth of a child. Um, but also the fragility of that life that that was like, it was there, couldn't have been. And then it's there. Uh, and then it stayed with us and it was a, it was a gift to us, you know, and that he's a living thing and you want to be there for him. And that, that's not to say that like, you know, I don't want to gloss over the difficulties of not sleeping and being a parent and how hard that is. Um, and the, the strain 
um, like a moment like that can put on a relationship and the, the, the lingering effects of that over time. Um, especially when we had our second son, we were nervous the entire way through, right? So my wife was like, it was very difficult like to worry about oh, this is this gonna happen again. Um, um, and, uh, but you know, with our second son, who's two years younger, there was no issues. So we had a kind of a normal experience the second time around. Um, and so I think all of that kind of made me reflect on me um, and where I wanted to be and who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. And, um, but also how I could show up um, and that it was important to me to show up as much as I could. Um, and that, you know, all credit to the place, like the firm I worked for, like they were very supportive with everything. And I think it was just, it wasn't like, you know, classic, like breakup story, right? It's not me. It's not you. It's me, right? Like, <laughs> um, so there was there was that idea. Um, but they they were great all the way through. In fact, even when I wanted to leave and do other things, they were really supportive. So, um, and now they have like one of the better parental leave policies and the better like um, leave policies. Like, perhaps I could have taken time away, um, you know, when I didn't recognize it. But I also didn't have the vocabulary like we talked about. I didn't know how to articulate what I was going through. I knew I was like wanting more of something, not wanting uh, or maybe it was like part-time or maybe it was just I wanted to be around my kid a little bit more while he was recovering because I felt like it was really important for me to be there um, physically and I think it was funny because I you know we had a like a parents group maternal and child health matches you up right like your mom mom's up with like a mother's group right which is a brilliant Australian thing for people who don't know about it like it is like everyone I know in every other country is so jealous of the concept yeah. that like your local council will just pair you up with other moms who have kids around the same age <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah young moms they just you know you might be friends you might not be like my wife's mother's group is so like they're such good friends mm -hmm. and those kids are now like really good friends with my my son just started going their seventh birthday parties you know <laughs> they've been friends for all the way oh, so they've made friends um, through it as well like, yeah the kids are all yeah, friends damn nice um and really good friends and the parents are friends and i mean ours worked out really well we had a positive experience yeah. with it um, it's such a brilliant thing. So we met some of the dads, we're friends with some of the dads, but a lot of the dads are like, oh, I want to work part-time. I want to be around my kids more. I want to be an active dad. Mm. Um, and so I think that's a big shift, right? Like amongst dads more broadly, not just South Asian dads or my own experience causing that for me. But I think it was a conversation I saw amongst many dads, regardless of having any kind of trauma with birth or not. Um, it was just that they wanted to be more, uh, around more, you know, and they wanted to be flexible. They wanted to be able to share the burden. Um, and then there was all this stuff out there about how, you know, imbalanced society is, how women do so much more caregiving at home. It's not recognized. Um, and that men need to step up and do more of that, you know? And, um, and I, th I think that's another thing that was like, you know, especially post pandemic, people were like, look at what inequality causes, you know, look at women and the gender pay gap and yet look at also how much more work they do like at home. Um, and, uh, and so I think men were like, well, why can't we be dads and also be a bit better at that maybe and kind of actually practice equality in a better way. And I think that there's like two camps. There's the dads that are all about equality and that do it. And there's the dads that recognize it and don't do it. And I've been both, I think sometimes I'm doing it and like I'm helping and then like, um, I had a lot of insomnia over the last couple of years. And so for me that like um, put a lot of stress on my partner to like kind of be in the mornings for like having out the kids with more stuff. And she's been amazing. Like she just does that. Um, 
uh, and she's probably more organized person than I am with like school lunches and things like that. But um, you're the, you're I used the lawyer. Unconscious of. <laughs> yeah. I know, right? Like now I'm the creative yeah. writer, and you, you, you can you can so own like it now. It's, now it's everything, like you know, and um, and so uh, I guess to say that they, that's been my experience in the journey of that, what that meant, and that whole um, how that shaped a lot of who I was and continues to do so, but also that it it ties in so much to my concept of being a dad and, and fatherhood and other dads and their concept of it and how that precipitates a change in you um, and, and what that means and, and kind of your inheritance that you pass along, which is not just biological, but, you know, can be shaped by your presence and the social dimension of you being there as a dad. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah. For for you, Sandeep, you know, you speak about this quite a bit, like creativity being a huge, like mm. a huge value for yourself, right? Community and creativity, and I yeah. can't help but think, but obviously, being aligned with your values is so inextricably linked. To your own mental health and i want to talk about it in the context of community and creativity both as values that you've landed on and how you've landed on those values um but also like how you're conscious about living by those values because yes leaving a high you know high very stressful job in in law all those realizations that you've had you're very intentional about the way you've gone about things um even the way you speak mm. about things um you know laura arjun jetan you know they they mean the world to you and i can tell you know you put family first beyond anything and so sometimes you know when you're talking about like men being so linked you know their identity being linked to their workplace um we sometimes yeah. forget the things that really make us who we are and and the people that mm-hmm. that bring us the greatest joy and i almost think that these things don't just like they don't just fall into place like a state of flow you need to be very intentional about it you need to be intentional about when yeah. you are switching off and spending time with family or spending time by yourself so long story short um how how did you land on those values as as being important to you um and how has sort of creativity or how do you create space for your own creativity um in in the work that you do because there's so much noise going on in the world um yeah yeah there is those are great questions um i think uh a couple things so um one idea that i was exposed to that was really helpful for me in determining my values is like um actually came about when i was um after jaytan was born in, in that circumstance arjun was born in that circumstance i was describing like i was kind of working this law firm i was like i don't know you know like, i know this is not right i'm feeling a little bit flat i need some help to, like work out what's right for me um and i was giving support to see a careers coach and the careers coach was like i want you to draw a circle and i want you to make a pie chart of the time you're spending on different things like how much time you're spending at work how much time you're spending on family how much time you're spending on um like other projects and community work and volunteering and things like that and um and i, I did that and i was like oh, okay and she's like i want you to draw a pie chart and a circle of what you want it to look like and i was like hmm I don't know. And it took me a while to work that out. But then I drew this thing that was like, had all these different slices in it. And she's like, 
if that's what you want to be, you're not like <laughs> the way you say, if you're like, it's not that. Um, and she looked at a couple of things and was like, it looks like you really value like volunteering. I've always volunteered with kids, like a group around a strong, like Indian and South Asian community. And so that like, the value and that the support that was offered through that, the seeing that enacted. And I saw it again during the pandemic, during the lockdown, right? Like neighbors, community members would support each other. When I had kids, like people came to support us when Arjun was in the hospital other times, you know, like community um, is such a powerful thing. Um, it's how we all connect. And so for me, I had a lived experience of that. And so that felt so tangible to me. And it felt like something that I was I valued so much. I mean, when I worked in emergency response, I worked in community engagement. Um, and so community became this place where you can deal with things um, and be supported by, and that is bigger than yourself. And, and so for me, I lived through that. It was part of my identity to have a community around me from a cultural perspective, but it was also like at various points, like having a community, a group of friends or a group of people working on a thing. It's kind of how anything gets done, right? Um, in the world. And so, um, and then that for me also, like I, uh, how I came to creativity was just that was like my approach to things. I liked, um, you know, like artistic and writing pursuits had always been like loved writing in words and um, comics and graphic novels and other things. And I remember someone was like, oh, let you know, we need to do an icebreaker mm. for a, um, a work thing. And I like, I invented my own one. I called it Huzzah. Yeah. And Huzzah was like a scavenger hunt over Zoom where you had to find old English related items um, and say, Huzzah, I found <laughs> um, And people are like, where'd you come up with that? I was like, I don't know, I just made it up. And they're like, you just always come up with these like something different. Yeah. It's like something Eating creative. And that's just like a <laughs> thing, yeah. Um, but there was an exercise I did with young people that was a great one, which was like there was five categories and you had to write down things that mattered to you, um, like, you know, family, like, you know, success, like write down a bunch of words. Then you ended up with like 20 different cards with words. And then the person who's facilitating this exercise was like, OK, now take away five from the yellow you know, mm. aisle, which is like, you know what is your like environment need to be like for you to be successful and like what is your what is uh, what and then you slowly take away these cards until there's only two left mm. um and mine was always creativity and community um and so that i only did that like uh, as part of a facilitated program um that i was running on um you know um human rights and leadership and diversity and uh, helping these young people learn about these concepts. And, um, and that exercise for me is kind of reaffirmed that these are the things, like it was mm -hmm. a way exercise to articulate what those values were. Um, and so I think it's worth like, there's reflective question prompts you can do. There's you know, that kind of exercise or activity. There's like the little clock dial. I think there's lots of different tools you can do. But one of the concepts that's super helpful for me in this space is that we're really bad as humans as like predicting ourselves and like labeling and picking out what we're all about and what we're good at. And like, um, but what we are great at as humans, especially as like South Asian humans who formerly or currently have corporate related jobs mm -hmm. um, is analysis, like losing our brain, right? So I think part of it, what I recommend to some people, like I've mentored some young people and I was like, hey, uh, one good way to work out what you want to do, what you like, what your purpose is, what your values are, 
um, is instead of like being, hey, that's the thing, or I'm looking at a dictionary of words, or I'm picking out a series of values and kind of making a stab at it, is to reflect just like your meetings with people or going to a bookstore or um, kind of, you know, how you interact with a meeting with someone you just met or what you've had or the, the, the conversations that you have overall. So like, say you meet people over the course of a month and you meet five different people and you reflect on the conversations you have and um, you reflect on what's missing in your life and what you want to gain out of your life. Um, and then say you do that 10 times you look back and there's some sort of like, we're good analysis, right? We look back at the, oh, here's the data. There's, there's 10 different entries. I'm gonna look back and I'll, I'll figure out what words I keep using over and over again or what things bubble up or what conversations I keep having or what section of the bookstore I was going to <laughs> or what, um, you know, like what movie I love and like what it says, like what's the theme of that film? Um, so I think what we can do is look back mm. and work out like what the pattern is, right? And that's reflection for me. And that's why it's important because if you don't do that, you don't take the best part of our brains, mm. like the analytical part of it, and and work and apply that to yourself in a way that's not like I got to figure it out now, and is not tied up in your current emotional state. Yeah, it gives you the perspective of distance. So I'm just being older it gives me that advantage, <laughs> but also having gone through a little process like that, that I was like reflecting back, looking back, and looking at the patterns of mm. my own life looking at the patterns of things that I've done and making an intentional like buying a notebook and just like making notes a number of times. It's kind of like the questions I had in my, my father's day article. Mm -hmm. um, if you did that over a course of like two or three years and you saw or like two or three months each month and then had a reflective thing. So I'm a big believer in that, like meta reflection. Mm -hmm. So having a, a couple of questions you ask yourself, taking yourself out to lunch once every like fortnight or month, writing things down and then looking at, at that at three or six months down the track going, what is this saying? Yeah about me like kind of like looking back at your notes at uni and that's where the goal I, is I, I remember it like um obviously I, I think you told harsh about those monthly dates like take yourself out for a monthly date and there was like a series of nine questions or so which she shared with me and then i've written it down as well and i look back at my entry in january um and january for me was a, i think it was jan or feb was a like i was i was pretty lost like i had just left my last yeah. job i'm in the job i'm yeah. in now and reading reading those responses i can see where my headspace was at like i think i think i i remember i think even after three questions it was quite overwhelming for me like there was so much noise up here that i wasn't able to actually sit down and articulate that into some words and i could tell like the next time i was able to do it which was like in april um it was much more seamless um and so it's really it's really yeah. interesting not only comparing the actual words um between those two moments but also this the, the feeling that i had as I was writing it down. Like, it's very yeah. interesting to capture that. It allows you to put like a benchmark, right? Mm -hmm. And go, oh yeah, I was at that point and now I'm at this point. Yeah. Whereas sometimes you feel like you're muddling through life and you're like, oh, I was at yeah. this point, I don't know when. Yeah. And so there's no kind of like trajectory. So it creates a different mm -hmm. version of your story, right? A different version of your narrative that you can create because you go, oh yeah, I was there and now I'm mm -hmm. here or I'm still here. Maybe I should do something yeah. about that. Yeah. You know, it just gives you that perspective. And then there was a second question you answered about how I make time for creativity. Yeah. So um, I have a couple of practices that I put in place, but mostly um, I either have a practice. So one of the things I do is the morning pages, yeah. which is I get up and I write three pages of, you know, stream of consciousness, basically nonstop. And that helps me process my feelings and what I'm going through and, and any kind of self-doubt and other things. And it's kind of a magic thing. You do it long mm -hmm. enough and like you write about a page and a half and then you run out of your own bullshit yeah. <laughs> like that you you say about yourself and then you start being like oh okay what am i doing next or how am i 
um, positive, you know, like, or what can I say that's like uplifting to myself? Um, but I find my, like, often it's very negative in the morning at the first start, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. like self-critical and then I'll go through it. And then I realize I, it frees me. Like I've listened to myself. Someone's heard me or I process those feelings and then I can start to create without the burden of those things or with less of a burden of those things. Um, and then I, I occasionally like you just give myself like a hard deadline or I'll, I'll get a class or something. So I've been working on a graphic novel mm. and just trying to like, you know, I, it was anything where there's a monthly deadline. So I just kind of tried to, to write for that and work in blocks for that. Yeah. Um, so just kind of dedicate blocks, but I realized also that um, one of the reasons like creativity is valuable is also kind of, uh, essential to who I am and so like if I don't do some creative things over time I get grumpy like um, I get grumpy with myself and frustrated at myself and I realize that I need to express myself in those creative ways and then I can do other things um, and then that allows me to be like freer and lighter um, mm. in the way that I, I go about doing things and that's how it works for me yeah Shout out to and so some people that have to take the plunge yeah the artist way is fantastic <laughs> for people who don't know the book it recommends the morning pages and artist dates and just discovering your your sense of self and i think this is a super good like the other practice of the artist way is called the artist date and what you do is you just take a date with yourself and you go out and like kind of explore stuff that you like you might go to an art gallery i walked around and saw some cool tagging on like in like you know graffiti on um like some silos that were nearby um I remember one day I just like, um, I bought a, like I went to an art store and just bought a bunch of cool art stuff. Um, like paper, like a like giant like sketchbook and like Japanese calligraphy brush pens. Oh, they're so cool, <laughs> right? And like, and I just like, I remember the day, it was a lockdown day and I like, I was in my car and I had this giant like open canvas thing. Um, of uh, an artist book and a sketchbook. And I had took out this Japanese like inkbrush pen and I just like brushed on paper. And I was like giddy. I was like five-year-old, I was like sense of play. Um, and so I think that for me, it's really important to have the kind of sense of that sense. Of, I rediscovered that sense of play in doing the artist's way and then going on these like journeys of my creative self and trying out a few different things that were just kind of fun. And I think it's something that like this, so I have words of the year um, and last year my word was play. Um, it was twofold. It was like learn, like play the feeling and then play the long game to kind of have a longer perspective. Um, but I, I realized that like, you know, we inhibit our sense of just having fun and playing as we become grownups in the <laughs> yeah. world. Um, and especially as men, like we're not, we're not like we, we do sports and it has to be competitive and like we, or we like, you know, play video games. Like we just like, I think there's a sense of play, especially for men, that's missing quite often. And that that sense of discovering yourself and the, the play, like the inner child and like enjoying that and feeding that and have funning with it, you know, like is something we often lost, lose touch with. And it can be so profound for us and it can help us rediscover who we are, especially like, you know, whether or not it's a tool that you use in like a recovery from like a mental health condition or just to help you regulate and it's a self-care thing that you do or if it's just who you are and you want to express that a little bit and just having fun so like one of the things that i love about being a dad and being a parent is like my kids are just in play they're just having fun they're making up rules they're just drawing weird stuff even though they have no drawing skills you know um they're just in the moment and enjoying themselves and so like the best part of fatherhood is and i think happiness is not like is a happiness culture right everyone's trying to be like happier all the time but i don't think that's what people are after i think it's like 
the absence from want for me is happiness, like to be in a moment where you're so present that you don't want anything else. And for me, often playing with kids and just playing around is, is that those feelings of like, oh, I don't want anything else in this moment, I'm just playing and it's just, I'm immersed and it's fun. Um, and so creativity is when I can feel like that. And sometimes creativity is hard work, like writing, you know, scripting, doing any, any, anything creative, coming up with ideas is always great, but then executing it is always harder, mm. right? So like, but I think there's some aspect to that, like the joy and the, the, the freedom and the sense of play that if you bring that, um, it's just hugely beneficial and it's worth taking time to discover what that means for you. Like what is creative play and what is play? What does creativity mean to you? And to like go to an artist date with yourself to like, you know, do something visual, see something fun. And it's not like going to see a movie, although it could be um, if that's what you're into, but it's something that just resonates with you that just makes you like feel happier and lighter. And I think we don't like structure ourselves enough to do that. Like it feels like a very, mm like non-masculine thing to, 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 to go on a play date with ourselves. <laughs> but yet it is, it is the most like great thing that we could do for ourselves. And I've heard yeah. multiple people talk about it in that way, um, whether it be creative people or like therapists and artists and people who talk about masculinity. So I think that's a really cool and useful thing. Mm, definitely. Um, wow. Well, uh, I think Sandeep, mate, this has been a very, um, very enlightening conversation. Um, I just wanted to thank you as well for, uh, can, to, I guess, you know, just sharing so much. Um, it's it, it's one of those again, like I've mentioned before, it's an absolute privilege um, for for Sunny and I to 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 chat with you and for you to share your your wisdom and impart your wisdom um, um, to not only myself and Sunny but also to our audience and also to um the the people that are listening so um much appreciated mate um we wanted to end uh today's conversation um as we okay. always do with, with, with via a rapid fire <laughs> i have one for you as well oh some questions for us yeah. oh lovely yeah, yeah. So, do you want to do that <laughs> oh no that's all right this yeah. one yeah, should I'm, be I'm, easier okay. it's so an easy it. open-ended question so it was a random <laughs> one because i know you started with a random one for me so i thought i'd keep on to you um so it was like uh, in a post-apocalyptic world, like not all the most things are gone. We don't have all the stuff. You have magically retained something of like a convenience of some kind um, that you've secretly been able to get, you know, whether it's like um, water or power or food or something that like is your secret, like thing that you kept over from before the world like went to hell um, and the post and the, in a post-apocalyptic scenario. What's the thing that you keep or that you have or that special thing that you got from what the world used to be like? What's the one thing that you bring over that's like, yes, yes, I have this. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. <laughs> do, do we have um, food? It's all precarious, all right? So like, is that still there? Or your thing is like the one great okay. comfort thing. Everything else is like living out of cans and barely, you know, like broken down houses kind of, you know, so to think yeah. Terminator 2 uh, kind gotcha. of scenario without the death gotcha, robots, gotcha, gotcha. right? Like, <laughs> so what's the thing? What's the, what's one comfort or the one thing or the yeah, one, gonna, you know, gonna... like convenience or the one thing that you have still? Man, you go if I've done my shoddy, shoddy not. First, Mate, so. I swear this always happens. I'm always so slow on it. Anything. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I would say it would have to be the feeling of on a cold winter's night 
waking up thinking that it's 6 a.m. and it's actually 3 a.m. in the morning and you've got three hours left of sleep. <laughs> that would be if there was any like <laughs> if there was anything that I could keep, it would just be that emotion. That exact yeah. emotion. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right answer, but yeah. nice. I 100% think that there should be a word for that in this dictionary. In the dictionary. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Well. <laughs> just the feeling you get from sleeping in that extra bit, you know, and being really cozy. Yeah, I like that. Man, that is a good. That is a good response, man. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't think. I don't think mine's. Uh, mine's gonna be uh, as creative. creative. Um, <laughs> so you get for going second, mate. I think. You know the. I sound like a drug addict. The feeling of like when you're craving coffee and you take that first sip of yeah. coffee. So you might even, um, would you have like a coffee machine that still worked when no one else had one kind of thing? Uh, no, like my name could have like a bedroom, it, right? That like yeah. survived the apocalypse, right? That was warm and cozy. Yeah. So like, yeah, yeah, that would be his thing. Yeah, I reckon. I reckon like a nice cup of coffee. Yeah. Um, and then just that feeling of like that, I don't know, like that that buzz when you have the first sip of coffee and that dopamine just gets released. Yeah. I used to be a barista back in the uh, day, yeah. so I, I love my coffee. And then I make coffee at home with like a mocha pot. Uh, and then I'm like horrendous. I have like four shots uh, each day, wow. which is like not healthy, not healthy yeah, at yeah. all. Um, but I just love the, I just love the taste of coffee. Um, I should really get on decafs. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that, that feeling of like when you're walking towards like, I don't know, cafe or whatever you might have uh, and you take that first sip of coffee and just that buzz you get from that. So maybe, yeah, yeah, nice. maybe it's having a, yeah. So that's a good question. What about you? I think for me it would be like, so when I was growing up, we had these, um, you know, water saving showers <laughs> came in like, cause we had a yeah. drought. Um, and before that, we had these like rainfall showers that were just like an like, ungodly amount of water um, that I just loved. And like, I remember we had one bathroom where they didn't replace the nozzle to be water shaving. And I used to like go out of my way to go there and um, like, you know, take that shower. Um, and so like a shower that is like not water saving, that is like a ton of water, like bucket on really like hot and like steamy, like, I would survive apocalypse if I had that like, like that just like warm shower experience because I feel like there was like hundreds of generations of humans that never got a chance to have a warm shower falling on them, you know, right? Like they didn't have running water, didn't have any of that, right? So every time like I've gone somewhere or I've traveled or something and I get into a warm shower, I'm just like, oh, I can I can survive anything if I get this warm shower. Um, and it's also a space where like I get creative, like in the shower, I think about mm. ideas and stuff like that, yeah. right? Like, so for me, it's like a twofold thing, but if I could have like a warm, like kind of large, endlessly running waterfall type shower, I could, I could get by and that would be my thing. Cause then I'd be like, ah. Oh, yeah. that would be a simple pleasure. Oh, that is so nice. A never ending hot shower. That is so nice. I love that. Um, I think that leads into rapid fire, Sonny, yeah, shall we? Yeah, kick it off. Cool. Could kick it. it off? I'll go first. Drum roll. <laughs> um, what is your favorite part of holding a barbecue? Uh, it's the I was I, I I have a smoker, so my favorite part is like the um, like the cheeky bite of the, the the meat I've taken before I give it to everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Then if it turns out good, cheeky I'm like, oh man, it's like fresh and it's hot, and I've just taken the cheeky bite. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> you're, you're, um, yeah, as we'll talk about that, you're like a four time uh, Australian winner or Australian championship for the chili. Yeah, so time. chili so, and barbecue, uh, a little, they're similar techniques, but they're different. So, smoking meat and barbecue is like a whole world in itself, and cooking chili is also a separate world. And they're kind of related because large American men basically dominate both. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fair, fair. Um, Second one is, uh, can you share an embarrassing fact um, or uh, if you want to share an interesting phrase that you've been through in your life before? Um, let's see, embarrassing fact. Um, We're putting you on yeah, I'm trying to think of a good one. Um, <laughs> most of my embarrassing things are kind of... Oh, okay. So I, I don't have a great stomach for drinking a lot. Um, and I had a friend in high school who I was really good friends. So I had a group of like five friends from primary school and we're all really close. And one of my friends moved to, um, his family moved, um, to the UK in, um, high school. And then, so we were 18, we wanted to travel and backpack. So we went over there. Uh, so the short, you know, rapid fire answer is that like the day we touched down, we went to, we were in Scotland and we touched down we went to a pub and we're like, oh, we're 18. We're coming from America. We can drink here. This is amazing because it's 21 in America. And let's get a beer. So I, I, and I, I got a beer and I drank it. And I was like, oh, like I'm not great at drinking beer. And then um, like we're walking back to our car or whatever. And I'm spewing my guts out. Like in, I run to the bin and like I'm spewing my guts out. So like for the rest of the tip, I was the like the guy who like day one like arrived and spewed spewed up for no reason other than having his first beer in this country like on the dream you know like stereotypical dream yeah. backpacking holiday when you're 18 um and so yeah. like i have been known so much my friends as not having the best like you know drinking stamina or constitution um yeah. Yeah. and i've done it a few times also like in costume where that's been the case so um <laughs> yeah you'd have a, you'd have a lot of stories from i do i do like uh, wearing a costume on occasion especially like halloween and so there's been a few messy <laughs> yeah. occasions because of said uh, weak constitution yeah. for drinking <laughs> for beer. Uh, cool sandeep man thank you heaps from the bottom of my heart this has been a very powerful conversation yeah it's been pretty fun <laughs> um thank you thank you thank you like um we'll put everything in the show notes there's a couple of different book recommendations your article on sari um and the book that has all those wonderful uh, obscurities and yeah i'll also uh, send you well, a link so. i don't know if it's googleable anymore but um i was a uh uh briefly an ambassador for are you okay day when i was a lawyer and talks about my mm. experiences of depression and mental health um in that space yeah. so there's an article i think it's um still searchable i believe it was i can't remember exactly i think it was the city morning herald um, where that was yeah. so it might be good for people who might be like early stage professionals or you know might be in those professions or something to to have a look at that so um, i'll send you a link um, yeah. if you can't find it and then um, no, it'd be good to put the show notes too just to to be on topic i guess cool yeah um we're looking forward to coming over and uh, trying out your bike yeah we're getting out so. <laughs> so we're away traveling for uh, going back to the states for a month so um yeah and then coming back and getting our kitchen renovated and then once that's all ready we'll I think we'll be ready in time for like we told them like we want to have a place that's ready for the volley and if not like for summer barbecues and stuff like that so um 
Yeah. That sounds good. <laughs> you can count us in. <laughs> We're self Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> we could we could do a live like a live um, show of just like us sloppily making food eating noises on the mic. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I I, uh, I don't know if Hash. Anyways, this is one. We'll, we'll wrap up and then I'll tell yeah. you a fun fact after. But uh, I'm also into barbecuing. I've got a matador. Oh, nice. I'll tell you about it in a second. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. Thank you, Sandeep. Um, this is Sunny closing off and signing off. Thank you so much, Sandeep. This is Mank signing off. Thank you, Sandeep. And that's a wrap for this episode. If you are enjoying our conversations, please help us out with a quick rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. All the conversations are recorded in video, so check us out on Instagram and Facebook at our handle at BottledUpPods. Drop us a comment or a message if any of these conversations resonate with you. And most importantly, please share this podcast with anyone who might need it. So as always, this is Bottled Up. Thanks for being part of our family and see you next time.